0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, uh, good morning. Um, Again, it is good to be with you this morning as we open God's Word. Um, If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to... First Samuel we'll be in First Samuel chapter one, looking at verses 21 through 28 this morning. And as you're doing that, I want to just share a little bit about a man named Hudson Taylor. Uh, Hudson Taylor was born in 1832. He was born to James and Amelia Taylor. He was born in rural England, and his father, James, was a bivocational pastor. He would preach weekly at their church, and then he also would work as a pharmacist uh, throughout the week. And two decades later, after uh, he was born uh, Jane, uh, excuse me, Hudson, uh, he became a missionary to China. And over the course of 51 years, serving in China, he became known as one of, if not, the, greatest missionary of the 19th century. Hudson Taylor had a passion for the Chinese people to encounter Jesus in the gospel, and that meant that he was willing to do whatever was necessary to see them come to faith in Jesus. And he founded a missions organization called China Inland Mission. It sent over 800 other missionaries to China, founded 125 schools throughout China, and it directly resulted in the conversion of over 18,000 Chinese, And that doesn't even count the, the converts of these new Christians who became Christians under Taylor's ministry. And today that mission's organization has changed its name and yet it's still in existence. And it has over a thousand missionaries that are focused on church planting among the unreached peoples of East Asia. And Hudson Taylor's passion for China, it began at a young age. He was fascinated with China, and yet it wasn't until years later, after he had committed on his own to become a missionary to China, that he discovered part of the reason why. Before he was born, his parents had prayed regularly that their firstborn son would become a missionary to China. And reading his biography, it's hard For me to not think of of Hannah here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and to some lesser extent to think of Elkanah. Like Amelia Taylor, Hannah had this inestimable impact upon her son Samuel. And like Amelia Taylor, Hannah prayed for the Lord to use her son in a mighty and extravagant way before his birth, even offering her son Samuel up to the Lord so that God might use him to accomplish his purposes. And that's what we saw last week. Last week we began our time in 1 Samuel chapter 1. We see the story of Hannah's prayer. She's in the midst of this battle, this affliction with infertility. And Hannah brings her pain. She brings her request to God. The one who had closed her womb according to verse 5 and verse 6 of 1 Samuel chapter 1. And while she is crying out to the Lord so that God would end her affliction, her prayer is not selfish. It's not just for her own affliction to end, but she's also crying out that God would do something about the affliction that is facing the people of God. That there's an even greater need facing God's people. If you look at the context of 1 Samuel, it comes at the end of the book of Judges where depravity runs rampant among God's people. And Hannah prays, yes, that that she would have a son, but also that she would have a son so that this son would be used by God to bring the people of God back to himself. That she offers her son up so that the Lord might use him to accomplish his purposes and promises amongst his people. And that's, that's Hannah's prayer. She prays that God would give her a child, not so that way she can use him to her own selfish ends, but so that he might be the one that will lead the people of God back to the Lord. And at the end of our time last week, we saw that that's exactly what God does. God gives Hannah a child And the focus is not on on just the end of, of a personal affliction, personal suffering, but God has given her this child so that, as we'll see over the course of the next several weeks, so that he can bring the people of God back to himself. And then a millennium later, we see that God does the exact same thing with the birth of John the Baptist. That there's this miraculous birth, to, to a, a couple that are struggling with having a child, and that, that child prepares the way for the chosen king. And that, th- a thousand years later, that chosen king isn't just David. That chosen king is Jesus himself. And Hannah's time in the story uh, of Scripture is about to come to an end, but we're not done with her yet. We're going to look at the rest of 1 Samuel this morning. We're going to see how Hannah presents her long-prayed-for long awaited son to the Lord in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the central place of Israel's worship. If you have a Bible, go ahead and follow along First Samuel chapter 1 starting in verse 21. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Let's pray. Father, as, as we consider these words this morning, we do ask that you would cultivate within each of us a heart and a faith like Hannah. A faith that looks to the promises that you have made in your word a faith that expects you to act in accordance with those promises. God, we ask that you would help us to be a people who respond to you and respond to your word and to respond to the the promises you have made us in Christ Jesus in, in a similar manner. God, that we would look to the promises of Scripture and see those because of the cross, because of the empty tomb, and, and we would see those as the foundation upon which we can, we can place our trust, place our faith in you, that, that we can respond with obedience to all the things that you ask of us. God, we ask that you would do these things so that we could be a people who are on mission for your glory and the good of our world. Bless us now, this time now in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, we we really see that this passage breaks into two distinct sections. We have first Hannah at home, and then Hannah at the tabernacle. And so that's what we're going to look at here this morning. First, we're going to look at Hannah in the tabernacle, or excuse me, Hannah at home. Before we do that, let's remind ourselves of how last week ended in verses 19 and 20. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife Hannah. And the Lord remembered her, and in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord." The text opens with, with Hannah at home after the birth of Samuel. Last week, we get a little bit of a glimpse of this faith of Elkanah. Elkanah is one of the very few people in that day who is still worshiping the Lord, still making the journey to Shiloh, to, to appear before the presence of God, to, to worship God. And year after year, Elkanah and his family make this journey to Shiloh so that they can worship the Lord, so that they can Offer up their sacrifices. And at the beginning of our passage this morning, we see that it is time for his yearly journey to Shiloh, his yearly journey to offer these sacrifices to the Lord. Verse 21 The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. Now, although this was a yearly journey for Elkanah, we we notice that there's something different going on about this trip. Something different is happening. Not only is Elkanah making this journey to Shiloh for his yearly sacrifice, but he's, he's also traveling so that he can pay his vow. And the text doesn't tell us what this vow specifically is, and yet in the context of First Samuel, it, it's safe to assume that that Elkanah has made a, a very similar vow to the one that Hannah has made in verse eleven. Let's take a look at verse eleven. And she vowed a vow and said, "O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servants and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life." And no razor shall touch his head. In the Old Testament, vows that were made by a wife could actually be overruled by the husband. And then we see that in, in Numbers chapter 30. And it's possible that Elkanah he hears Hannah's vow in the temple from verse 11. And not only does Elkanah say, you know what, this is a good and right vow, but, and he ch- chooses not to nullify it, but he says, this is such a good thing to ask of God that he joins in with his own vow, that he affirms the vow of his wife. And here again, we, we catch the, just a glimpse of the, the faith of Elkanah. Like his wife Hannah, Elkanah sees that the greatest need for the people of God is for someone to bring them back to the Lord. And so Elkanah joins into the devotion of his wife. He makes his own vow for the sake of God's mission, for the sake of what God is going to do among the people of God to establish God's kingdom on the earth. The text doesn't tell us the specifics of his vow, just that he heads to Shiloh for his yearly sacrifice, and as he makes this journey, he's going to pay his own vow. And we see that that Elkanah, just like we'll see from Hannah, takes this vow seriously. This isn't a flippant flippant comment that he has made just to get what he wants out of God. We see that, that from Elkanah, keeping a vow that he has made is an act of worship to the Lord, just as much as the sacrifices that he offers on a yearly basis are an act of worship to God. And so Elkanah travels to Shiloh as a part of keeping his vow, and yet it's Hannah's vow that compels her to stay at home. Let's look at verse 22. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Forever. I love Hannah's statement here because it just shows how deep her faith is. How radical her obedience is. I don't want us to interpret this statement from Hannah as this statement of a mom who's trying to just hold on to the last few shreds of time that she has with her son before she reluctantly does what God has, has asked of her, dragging him off or dragging on this, this we, weaning process for year after year after year, longer than it should go, just so that way she can have more time with her son. To, to look at, at Hannah through that lens is, is a disservice to the beautiful faith of this woman. In the ancient world, the weaning process would last a lot longer than it does today. And the reason is because they they didn't have as as soft of foods as we do now. And so children would continue to be breastfed at least partially until they were three or, or even four years old. And at this point, Samuel is less than a year old. And it's, it's not time for him to be brought to the tabernacle. It's impossible to, to leave him at the tabernacle. So, so why does Hannah refuse to go to the, the tabernacle? I think it's because of how seriously she's taking her vow to the Lord. She sees her vow as so seriously that she doesn't want to travel to the tabernacle, bring Samuel with her, and then not follow through on her vow. If she were to go before the presence of God in that moment, she would be forced to leave the tabernacle with Samuel to give the appearance of, of her breaking her vow to the Lord. And so she has this mindset that the first time that she goes back to Shiloh, the first time that she appears before God will be the time where she will fulfill her vow. I love the way one commentator puts it. He he describes it this way. Had she gone before her son was weaned, she must have taken him with her and brought him away with her, and that would have broken the solemnity of the transaction when at last she should take him for good. The very first time that she should present herself at that holy place in the presence of God where God heard her prayer and her vow would be made would be the time when she would fulfill her vow. So Hannah doesn't go with her husband to Shiloh because she doesn't want to give any impression that she is reneging on her vow. And so she stays at home with Samuel. And she makes it very clear that when Samuel is ready, she will bring him to the tabernacle. And that is when he will serve the Lord for the rest of his life. There's this clear permanence here in the words of Hannah, she has made a vow, and unlike so many people who make promises to God and yet later walk it back, Hannah says, I am going to keep my vow. How does Elkanah respond? Verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you, wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And again, we see here the, the faith of Elkanah. He understands Hannah's motives. He, he affirms those motives, affirms her plan. And, and so Hannah stays at Ramah for the next two or three years, raising Samuel, and then she will bring him to the tabernacle. Now, it's not the main point of this text, but I do think it's, it's briefly worth mentioning the impact that Hannah has on her son Samuel, even in those early years. Everything that we see from Samuel later on in the book of 1 Samuel can be traced back to this time with his mom, even as a toddler. This woman of impeccable faith and maturity surely took advantage of the opportunity that was given to her for those years to invest in her son, shape her son, mold her son in the faith, a faith that would one day lead the nation back to the Lord. And I think that there's a message here for parents of young children to not underestimate the ability of young children to grasp the truths of the gospel even at a young age. This past week I was reading a book, it was a collection. it's called Devoted. It's a collection of, of different snippets of godly men and their moms. And it's actually a, a collection of, of all of these different stories of, of people that we have heard of, likely heard of, from Christian history, and how the, the faith and the impact of their mother was instrumental to who they became later on in life. So we might be familiar with John Newton. John Newton was a, a slave trader who later on became a, a, not just a Christian, but a pastor and a hymn writer. He wrote the song, Amazing Grace. John was incredibly influenced by his mom, Elizabeth. Later on in his life, John would write these words, She, Elizabeth, my mom, made it the chief business and pleasure of her life to instruct me and bring me up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. John, later on, of course, turns his back on Christianity, becomes a slave trader, and yet he says later on that the lessons that his mom taught him when he was a, a toddler played an instrumental role in his conversion. I think the most significant thing about John's testimony about his, his mom, Elizabeth, is that his mom died from tuberculosis when he was six. And he said that the foundation that his mother laid was, quote, I do not doubt doubt that I reap the fruits of her prayers for me to this very hour. Is there little doubt that Hannah saw her responsibility in the same light that Elizabeth Newton? That those few years that Hannah had with her son before dedicating him to the service of the Lord, she saw those formative years as an opportunity to pour the word of God into Samuel's life. Notice the very last phrase of verse 28. Verse 28 says, And he, Samuel, worshipped the Lord there. Who taught the toddler how to worship? Who taught him the faith? Who poured into him so that he was ready to be used by the Lord to lead the people of Israel back to the Lord their God? It was Hannah. It was Elkanah. Based off the the evidence of this passage, we see her faith and her commitment to the Lord. There's there's no doubt that she is the one who's pouring into her Son. And if you if you have toddlers, I think the the picture, the, the lesson we can learn from Hannah and Elkanah and Elizabeth Newton is is profound because the best time for us to start pouring the gospel into the lives of children is yesterday, and the second best time is today. That Samuel, as a toddler. Worship the Lord. And it was because of the commitment of his parents. I mentioned that's not the, the main focus of this text. Let's, let's come back to our text because uh, there's a phrase here in verse 23 that I think is, is significant for understanding the motivation or the foundation upon which everything that Hannah does, everything that Elkanah does, is based on. Verse 23 again, it says this, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, May the Lord establish his word. Now, I spent a lot of time this past week wrestling with this phrase because what exactly does it mean when, when it says that, that Elkanah is asking that the Lord would establish his word? We look at First Samuel chapter 1 and to this point, we don't have the word of God being spoken. Actually, the the Word of God isn't spoken or made reference of until we get to 1 Samuel chapter 3. And so I I did a lot of wrestling, a lot of of, of struggling with this and and looking just at the broader context of Scripture as a whole. And I I noticed that whenever the the Old Testament says this word, establish, in in relationship to God, may the Lord establish, it's a reference to His covenant. It's a reference to the, the relationship that he has with his people. And it doesn't matter if it is Noah or with Abraham or with the people of Israel. And this idea of covenant is, is crucial for us to understand as we look at 1 Samuel. Because it's, it's crucial for us not just in understanding what God is doing during the time of David, but also how this all fits into God's plan that culminates in the person of God. Jesus. Last month, while in Liberia, we talked a lot about covenants, and we defined covenant. We said this is one of the biggest pictures, the biggest or the most important under, things that we have to understand about the story of Scripture, of what God is doing in the Scriptures. And we gave this definition or this, this understanding of what a covenant is, and I, I think it's helpful for us to, to look at this as well. A covenant is a relational bond between two parties that contains blessings, obligations, curses, and is sealed by an oath. Let me say that again. A, a covenant is a relational bond between two parties. And so oftentimes in the Old Testament, oftentimes in the Bible, it is between God and humanity, but also the coven, a covenant is, is sometimes made between two different people. It's this relational bond, this connection. And a part of that. There's, there's responsibilities, obligations, or I will do this. And as a part of that, there, there's blessings and there's, there's curses, and it's oftentimes sealed with an oath. And if you look at the Old Testament, you look at Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, the story of Abraham. God establishes this special, unique relationship with Abraham, and he says, If you follow me, there will be blessings. I'm going to bless you in a unique way, and I'm not just going to bless you. I'm going to bless the nations because of you. We look at Exodus chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 9. God says the exact same thing with the people of Israel. He says, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm entering into a special relationship with you, and if you keep my covenant, then I am going to bless you And, of course, that's sealed with an oath. We see this in the New Testament as well. That God establishes a new covenant with his people in the person of Jesus. And those who come to him, we see that there are blessings. And it's sealed with an oath. It's sealed with the blood of Jesus for us. So understanding this picture of of a covenant is crucial for understanding what Elkanah is saying here. Anytime the Bible says, may the Lord establish his covenant or may the Lord establish his word, it's a statement of saying, God has made a promise to his people. We are asking that the Lord will keep the promise that he has made to his people. And so in the life of Hannah and Elkanah, Elkanah understands Hannah's desires for Samuel, not just for a son, but for a son that God will use to bring the people of Israel back to him. And so when Elkanah says, keep Samuel here until you have weaned him, and then may the Lord establish his word, it's, it's almost like he is saying, your desire to keep Samuel until he is weaned is, is good, it is right, it is right." Let's, let's raise him, let's, let's pour into him until he is weaned. That's a, that's a good thing, that's a part of God's plan, and we will continue to pray that God will establish his word, that God will establish or accomplish the promises that he has made to his people in his word, and we're asking that God would do that through Samuel, so this phrase, may the Lord accomplish his word, is a crucial one for understanding the, the heart of Elkanah, the heart of Hannah here as they are bringing their child to the Lord. So It's absolutely incredible faith. They are are consumed not with selfishness or or this bitterness at having to, to turn their son over to God, but instead they're basing their entire lives upon the promises that God has made to his people. We see obedience from them. It's not obedience out of obligation, but rather obedience that says, God, we are expecting you to work. We're expecting you to do what you have said that you are going to do. Their lives are rooted in the promises that God has made to his people in the scriptures. So for Hannah here and for, for Elkanah here, their, their lives don't revolve around their desires, don't revolve around their wants. Rather, they're, they're centered upon the promises of God in his word. As we come to the, the end of this first section I think the text is, is saying, what about us? We have this beautiful picture of, of Hannah and Elkanah and how they've, they've formed all of their life around who God is and, and what God has promised and what God has done in his word. And, and we ask, well, what about us? Hannah and Elkanah, they're this shining example for what it looks like for us to be a people of the covenant, a people of, of the new covenant that Jesus has made with us. Are we consumed with this desire to, to do what God has asked of us, to, to live accordingly to his word? Or, or are we centering our lives around something different? The question we have to ask ourselves is, is my life centered upon the promises of God in his word? Is that the lens through which we look at all of life? Is our life, is my life shaped by God and his word? This absolutely has, has massive implications for, for life in the home, for, for parenting. Can you imagine what it was like for Samuel in those three years to just be saturated in this environment, to to have a a mom who is completely and utterly committed to the covenant, to have a dad who is completely and utterly committed to the covenant, to the promises that God has made to his people, to see obedience to God not as as this obligation or something that we just have to do, but instead as a delight that, that God is going to work and we might get to join in what God is doing in the world. His, his life is, is shaped and, and transformed by, by this worldview, this commitment from his mom and dad. And, and if, if you're a parent, no matter whether you're, your kids are, are young or, or out of the home, what would it look like for you to be this type of example for the rest of your family? to center your life not upon uh, the the schedules of your children, not upon relaxation, not upon the American dream, not upon a list of all of these do's and don'ts that we have to do in order to be good people, but instead to base our lives upon the center of the scriptures, the, the promises that God has made to his people in Jesus. But this isn't just... A promise or, or a question or a commitment that has to do with parenting. Because no matter our life situation, this is a passage for every sphere of life. What does my life revolve around? What is the center of my life? Is it my self? Is it my job? Is it my leisure time? Is it my accomplishments? My notoriety? About what I want out of my life, what I expect God to give me in my life? What if we centered our lives around Jesus? And the promises that God has made to us in Jesus. That every decision we made, we first looked at it through the lens of what God has done for us, of who God is, of the promises that God has made to us. These, these first few verses of uh, this picture of Hannah, this picture of Elkanah, it forces us to ask Is my life centered upon God and upon His? word. That's the first few verses here, Hannah at home. We transition a few years later to Hannah at long last is in the tabernacle. Let's take a look at verses 24 through 28. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. There, then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, "Oh, my Lord, as long or as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord for this child. I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to Him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as He lives, He is lent to the Lord, and He worshipped the Lord there." At long last, the time has come. Two years, three years, four years, whatever the case, the time has come for Hannah to make the journey to appear before the Lord at Shiloh and to fulfill her vow. And when the time comes, Hannah makes an offering to the Lord in verse 24 and 25. Our, our English translations say that she offered up a three-year-old bowl. If you look at the footnotes in your, transla- in your, in your Bibles, you'll notice that it, it says something like that she offered up three bowls. And I, I think that uh, this alternate reading is, is more accurate. It's what the original Hebrew said, and, and a lot of our English translations say, oh, that's, that's too extravagant. That can't be the case. She offered up a three-year-old bowl instead. But if you look at the rest of her offering, and, and an ephah of flour was the amount of flour that you would offer up for three bowls. And she offers up an ephah of flour, and she offers up the this, this skin of wine, and I think she offers up three bowls as well because of the wealth of Elkanah's family as we saw last week. This is an extravagant offering, and yet, it's an appropriate one to give thanks to a God who has dealt extravagantly with her as well. You see, Hannah's offering here consists of, of I think, three young bowls, and it's somewhere between 20 to 25 pounds of flour, about five gallons of wine. And, and she offers all of this up as a peace offering or as, as a thank offering. It expresses her gratitude to God for what he has done in answering her prayer to him. A thank offering was actually a feast. So when you offered a, a thank offering in the tabernacle or later on in the temple, you would, you would con- burn some of it as, as an offering to the Lord, then you'd give some of it to the priests, and yet the rest was given back to you, and you were supposed to celebrate and, and throw a feast and invite people to it, and that's exactly what is done here because we have a lot of food. We have, we have three bowls, we have tons of cakes, we have, we have plenty of wine. Hannah's extravagance here is, is mirroring the extravagance of, of God and what he has shown to her in answering her prayer. Not just for a son, but also for a deliverer for his people Israel. And that's actually what she says in verses 25, 26, and 27. She's talking to Eli, and she uh, says, Hey, Eli, remember who I am? You thought I was drunk. Well, I'm not. I wasn't. I I was praying to the Lord, and and guess what? Here's here's the proof that God has answered my prayer. She makes it clear that that the Lord has provided Samuel to her. Samuel is a testament to to the faithfulness of God, not only in Hannah's life, but Lord willing, the faithfulness of God in what he will do through Samuel's life to bring the people of God back to himself. And we have this moment, to, at long last, the time has come. And Hannah's in the tabernacle with Eli. She's, she's feasted she celebrated the goodness of God in keeping his promises to his people and now it's time to entrust Samuel into the service of the Lord. Verse 28. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives he is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. As I read those words I I think of The way a a biographer describes Mary Borden, she was uh, a mom whose son went off to be a missionary amongst unreached Muslims in Western China. And as she was waiting for her son to be ordained and, and sent out and commissioned, consider these words. While her son's ordination was a moment of great joy for Mary, it was also mixed with sorrow as it marked his sure departure. She had consecrated him to the Lord's service and now had to surrender him. But the separation had until this time been prospective. Now it was coming near. His ordination meant, as Mrs. Borden realized, that they were committed to the sacrifice that seemed as if it might cost her her very life. you can imagine how beautiful and impossibly hard this moment was for Hannah. A moment she had prayed for for years, potentially for decades, and yet now it's here. Her love for her son knew no end, and yet also her love for her Lord knew no end. And so just as she had always done, she responds with obedience, not as this obligation, but rather as, as an ex- expectation that God, God's going to do something, that God's going to bring his people back to him, that God's going God's to accomplish his purposes, his plans, his, his mission here, and, and she can be a part of that as well. Whenever we have a a child dedication here at Crosswinds, we ask the parents the following question, do you now dedicate this child to the Lord who gave them to you, surrendering all worldly claims upon his life or her life in the hope that he or she will belong wholly to Jesus Christ? And I think that's what Hannah does in this moment. The hardest step of obedience yet, that she had spoken the words before, that she surrendered all worldly claims upon her son, and yet now she has to act it out. That she has to give him into the Lord's service for the sake of God's glory among his people and and to the ends of the earth. This is absolutely incredible faith here from Hannah. She acts not out of her own self-interest, not, not doing what she most desires, but out of a commitment to the covenants that God has made with his people. And more than her own desires, she, she, she desires that, that God will accomplish his purposes and his plans across the globe. And we ask, well, what about me? We turn this passage inward and, and ask, what about me? Not only do I ask, is my life centered upon the promises of God in his word, but also we ask, do I value the mission of God more than my own wants? My own desires with my Life. Do I value participating in the mission of God more than I value what I might want most? Again, this is certainly true for parents. What if we actually surrendered all worldly claims upon the lives of our children, no matter what age they may be. That we entrusted them into the hands of the Lord, that that we even prayed that God would use him, use them to accomplish his mission here on earth among the nations. Do we value the mission of God more than what we might want for children but again this this isn't just about parenting because we we have to ask that question it's not just do we value or or want the mission of God to be accomplished more than what we want for our children The, the question is also do we want the the mission of God to be accomplished more than we want our own desires our own wants the things that we want for ourself in life. That this conflict between the mission of God and self is found in every sphere of life. What has captured our hearts? What rules our hearts? The Lord Jesus and his mission to establish his kingdom across the globe. Or are we infatuated with our own little kingdoms? The things that we want out of life? A pale comparison to God's incredible plan, His incredible mission. What about you? Do you value the mission of God more than what you want from life? To that end, Hannah and Elkanah are an incredible picture of godliness, of of obedience. Their lives are centered upon God and upon his word and upon his promises. They value the mission of God more than they value what they might want out of their lives. And and that leads to this incredible obedience from them. And that's the message I, I really hope we just take home from this passage. As as we consider what obedience is, we know that the Lord cherishes obedience, but he cherishes obedience that doesn't come from obligation, but rather that comes from expectation. Expectation that God is is accomplishing his purposes, that God is, is accomplishing his mission, and we can be a part of that. If we would be obedient. The Lord cherishes the obedience, the, the very hard, costly obedience of his people that doesn't come from this place of duty, that doesn't come from this place of obligation, but instead is, is founded upon the fact that God has, has said he is going to do things, that he has a mission that he is going to accomplish through his people, and we get to be a part of that, and we can expect that he is going to use us and our obedience to do exactly what he wants to do in this world. World, And again, this, this is a high calling for those who are, are parents. If, if you're a parent who, who still has children in the home, maybe God is, is using this passage to, to nudge you, to, to point you in the direction of Hannah and of Elkanah here, to surrender all worldly claims upon their life, and maybe to even begin to pray that God would use your child to accomplish his purposes amongst the nations to pray for your children, to be future leaders in the church, future life group leaders, future worship leaders, future pastors, future missionaries, future elders. But it's not just that. It's also a call to surrender the claims that we have placed upon our lives. Of what I want out of my life, of what I want life to look like. See, this idea of surrendering all worldly claims isn't just something that is relevant for a a subsection of people. It's relevant for all of us. That all of us have, have placed claims upon our lives and we need to surrender those to the Lord Jesus so that we can join in the mission of God. Join in the opportunities that God has given us to accomplish his purposes and his plans here and now and beyond. This past fall, our our elders unveiled a a five-year vision of what we want Crosswinds to look like it starts here. Surrendering my idea of what I want my life to look like. Offering it up. Exchanging it for the life that God has planned for us. The Lord cherishes the obedience of his people. That doesn't come from obligation, but comes from expectation. What if that were true of us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. God, we ask that you would help us to lay down our picture of what we want our lives to look like and to exchange it for the even more beautiful picture of joining in with what you are doing in this world. God, we ask that you would help us to be a people who respond to the call and implications of the gospel with obedience. We ask these things for the glory and fame of Jesus now and forevermore.